How do you go from being a broke journalist to building a multi-million dollar media company? Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm your host, Greg Gallant, and today we have Rafat Ali, the founder of Content Next Media. They publish a number of blogs. Their flagship blog is paid content, which, according to Reuters, has quickly established itself as a must-read among executives in the media and digital media sector. Now, seriously, if you are in the online business, you've definitely heard of paid content. You probably read it every day to find out how media companies are changing, who's being hired, who's being fired. Now, the interesting thing about Rafat, what, uh, the story I did know was that he'd worked for a past guest of, uh, of ours on the show, um, Jason Calacanis at uh, Venture Reporter, who Jason Calacanis now went on. Uh, when we had him on, he'd done Weblogs Inc., and he's now doing Mahalo. So Rafat worked for him. You heard that he worked for uh, Inside.com. What I never knew is that Rafat was pretty much broke when he was starting Content Next Media, yet he's been able to build it, uh, as he talks about on this podcast, to a really impressive small media company. It was just acquired by The Guardian. They didn't disclose the price, but it was rumored to be $30 million. I tried to get Rafat to tell me what the real number was. You'll get to hear if I was successful or not. So please have a listen and enjoy. Welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks for having me. So let, let's rewind all the way to the beginning. You're still a pretty young guy, but why don't you tell me about how you got your first job, your first uh, professional gig? Uh, that was a long time ago. First professional gig uh, was I was a journalist. Uh, this was way back when I was in India. The first job that I got, I think it was pretty pretty uneventful. I I came out of college and I applied for it and I and I got it. I mean, it wasn't anything to it, but a lot has changed since then. Sure. And how did you end up uh, coming to America? Well, I came to U.S. in '99 to do my master's in journalism. I went to Indiana University. I was there from 99 to 2001. I missed the first bubble, and when I came out, the market was really horrible uh, for us as as job seekers. I moved from Bloomington, Indiana, where I went to school, and then from there I moved to New York, and uh, I was lucky to get a job as an intern at this site called Inside.com, which was a media news site at that point. Um, and that site didn't last too long. It only lasted about 18 months um, from starting to the end of the site. And then I jumped um, to Silicon Alley Reporter, which was at that point the magazine that was covering New York internet scene. And by the time I joined the magazine, it already closed down, but the website was on. And then morphed into a magazine called Venture Reporter, which you probably had heard of at that point, and was covering venture capital in the media industry, which again at that point wasn't too much because this was right in the middle of the recession. So it was during that time that I started PaidContent.org as a as just a blog site to show what I could do as a journalist covering the industry. And it was more of an interactive resume for me at that point. Nobody gave me a job based on it, which was actually good. And I started, I moved from New York to London, London to, to Los Angeles, where I live now. And over the period of six years, it grew into a, a media company. So it must have been an interesting experience working at uh, Inside.com and then with uh, Calacanis's uh, companies. I imagine, you know, if you're working as a journalist at uh, some big place, the New York Times, you really kind of never, you know, you never see the bit, or you maybe now you do, but you rarely see the business in kind of a basic flux, whereas uh, Inside.com was kind of the poster child for kind of an overhyped, overfunded company that uh, I guess also did some good editorial work. And then, you know, Calacanis also went through a lot of business trials and tribulations. He was on our show uh, about a year ago. So what was it like, um, you know, what was it like working in that environment? Were you exposed to all the stuff that was going on to your own company or were you just focused? Yeah, I mean, it was really, um, I learned a lot at both of those companies. And firstly, Inside.com for whatever it was 
on the business side, I mean, they really did not have any idea of what their business model was going to be. The timing was all wrong. Their whole premise was was interesting, but they never uh, turned it into a business. They sort of went too much towards the media gossip side, even though I guess they, my view was that they should have focused on the trade, sort of business to business, similar somewhat to what we do now. Um, they should have done that, but they went too much on the gossip side. And the timing was so bad that um, that really they couldn't do anything about it. The journalism part was really good. They broke a lot of stories. They had a lot of good journalists. They hired from all kinds of mainstream publications, who, if you look now, are spread all across the media landscape and doing doing very well. New York Times, um, MTV Network, and, and a bunch of other places. Um, Stacy Kramer, who's our co-editor, and I both used to work at Inside.com. And then after that closed, it closed right. It was going to close anyway, and then September 11th happened, and I was in New York, and we closed. I think a month after, or little a month, little less than a month after September 11th, we closed down. And uh, I was very lucky at that point to get a job with Silicon Alley Reporter. I probably was the well, I was the first one out of every everybody who was laid off to get a job. Like within four days of Inside.com closing, I had a job, and it was really just me emailing. Jason, who I knew a little bit through just online online circles, because I had I had covered his company, and I saw a job posting on his site like two months ago, before Inside.com closed down. I just emailed him and asked him if the job's still open. And he said, "Why don't you come down, come down the next day?" And I went there and I interviewed with him, and I then I emailed him back after the interview saying, "Hire me, give me two months. If you don't like me, fire me," which is what he liked. And then he said, "Okay, join. Why don't you join Monday?" So, um, I mean, it was really, in some senses, it was hustling the same way Jason Calacanis does. Is uh, essentially we will out hustle anybody in the in, in the industry, and and I use it in a in a positive business sense. And uh, I think that's that's what gave me a job at, at at his place, and I learned a lot under him, even though we were not in the greatest of shapes there, business wise. Um, I learned a lot about reporting from working at Silicon Alley Reporter at that point. At that point, it was just the online site, so I was doing the daily newsletter and website. So I learned a lot. I I started blogging with his company, so I learned a lot there. I I, I think along the way, I learned a lot from them, both in terms of product as well as journalism. The sales side is what I learned on the job when I started paid content. I mean, I had no idea, zero idea. So I just learned. I didn't even, I mean, I knew what, C, I mean, I was, because I was covering the online advertising industry, I knew what CPMs were. I knew um, some of the terminology, but I really did not know what, how do you price it, all that stuff. So, so that, that I learned, I, by that time I moved from New York to London and just learned it over the, just reading stuff online and, and, playing it by the air, I think, from trying to run the business, trying to run a U.S.-focused business from London at that point was hard, but but I did it. And so how did that all wrap up for you? Um, I mean, there's a lot more to that story. I mean, from <laughs> from London, um, London, I started, the word started getting out, I think, more when I was in London, and then um, just moved being able to travel to the U.S. as well as Europe and speaking to and and going to a lot of conferences, I think one of the things that did it, it really did spread by word of mouth. I mean, there was there was no other way. And uh, I mean, word of word of link, I would say online, uh, and and being at conferences, covering conferences, meeting people. I mean, it was it was really one subscriber at a time, so to speak, that we built this for over over the six years. As I was, as the site started growing in London, I launched a sister site called Moco News, which covers mobile content business. And uh, when I was there, I saw how kids and even adults were using their phones as a content consumption device, as ref with ringtones and wallpapers and games. And again, this was early. This was 2003. So I started Moco News. It would spun off paid content. Tell me about like the the very genesis of like paid content. Like when was it that you had the 
the idea? Like, when did you sit down and register paidcontent.org? What, what was that kind of moment for you? Um, well, I mean, I, I do have I have an exact date because it's easy because that's the day I wrote my first post. Um, it was June 4, 2002. Uh, this was when I was still back in New York. This was middle of the summer, really hot summer. And blogging had just started. I mean, I started blogging in 1999, but that was I was a student and that was a personal blog. Um, back when I moved from India to the U.S. and I was sort of journeying my immigrant journey of, of, of life in the U.S. So this was way back in 1999. But in 2002, when I started paid content, I mean, why did I start paid content? I mean, what I mentioned before, it was it was mainly as an interactive resume, and and there I looked at trends to cover. One of the trends in the hands-to-hand name paid content at that point was people thought you would have to pay to access websites because the online advertising market had crashed, and so I started tracking that trend. Um, sites like New York Times, Slate, Street.com. Wall Street Journal, of course, ConsumerReports.com. So all those sites, that was the trend I started tracking. It did not necessarily turn out that way as we knew in the years. Hence, um, because advertising market came back. So mandate of the site uh, broadened to include uh, all kinds of digital media business models and paid content. Now, how we say it is that all the ways in which content gets paid for, whether it's subscription, whether it's advertising, whether it's any other other kind of hybrid model. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it was it, it wasn't meant to be a business. It just was meant to be a personal thing. I did not get a job. Uh, I mean, I did not job in New York. I did not get a job in uh, London. And for the first four months of me moving to London, I got fed up of trying to find a job. And uh, meanwhile, people had already started emailing uh, about whether the ads, and I thought about it, didn't know how to ads. I thought $400 a month sounded better than 500 because it was less than the 500 psychological barrier at that point. And so I said $400 a month. And they said, okay, we'll do it. And this was just one banner for a month that I put on their website, on, on the website. And it also had one of the things it did was I started a, a, a daily newsletter right along with the blog. So all the blog posts went into an email newsletter. So I think both of those together helped us solidify our our story. Uh, so the kind of the revenue, the the initial first dollars came to your door. It was never you decided, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to make my own money. Uh, it was you were just doing what you know how to do, and uh, the pieces just started falling together. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, there was actually a very specific moment when I was in London where I said that um, I don't want to keep looking for a job because I was still on the fence whether I should. I mean, the blogging was going on because that was the only thing I had going on in my life at that point. Um, while I was hunting for a job, at some money I was living with a long lost relative of mine in East London, um, but. There was a very specific moment, which I do remember, which uh, Fast Company magazine, which I never was a huge fan of back back then. I do like it now much better than when I used to like it then. But it had um, a sort of manifesto uh, by Seth Godin, the 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 online online marketing guru, and uh, he. I'm forgetting what the exact phrase, uh, the exact words of it were. I can probably find it somewhere. Uh, but it was something to the fact that leave your job and do it now. And now is the best time to start a company in the downturn. I mean, his whole point was downturn is the best time to start a company. And it was written very well. And I just said, okay, so I'm doing this. Might as well go into this full time. And um, I actually did email him a couple of years after that you were, the, you were sort of one of the catalysts that helped me decide. And he never emailed me back. <laughs> so I'm kind of still angry about that, but it is what it is. Hey, well, hopefully he's listening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's now, since then he's been to our sites, sites a bunch of times, but that's it. So now that you're, um, so, you know, you, you'd reach that moment, you, you'd kind of said, screw it, I'm not looking for a job, I'm doing my own thing. 
it must have been kind of interesting for you in that, you know, there are a lot of people who, who, who kind of prepare for starting a business or, you know, they went through college knowing they wanted to be an entrepreneur. What was that kind of, what was kind of the second thought after the thought, I'm going to, you know, this is going to be a real business? Well, I mean, I, I did not have a choice. I, it was either that or I have no money to, to, to live or eat food anymore. I mean, it was really that. <laughs> So it was. It wasn't that I had money stashed away. I had. I remember the first six eight months in London after I moved out of my aunt's house and moved into this smaller room in East London. There were at least two times I remember when my bank had zero balance. So my friends had to send money. My friends in London had to send money to build me up from zero from negative balance. Sorry to positive balance. But at the end of the day, I knew, I mean, how much money do you need to to survive? I mean, that's sort of what drove me. And I said, well, you don't really need much. You only need this much for rent, this much for food. Meanwhile, the fight is growing. And meanwhile, I was getting invitations to speak at conferences, so I thought I was doing something right. And I think it was, it was just some validation there. And the interesting part, in 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 Europe as opposed to U.S. at that point was if you were say a keynote speaker, conferences usually pay you to to be a, a um, keynote speaker. So besides the small amounts I was getting in online advertising, um, there's one specific conference in Germany that I went to, which was the whole conference was in German language. It was about online online media. Um, but I was the only English speaker there, and they gave me like two and a half thousand euros to speak there, which was a huge amount of money for me back then. And uh, that helped me. That helped me a lot, a lot to actually keep 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 the business going and keep me going for that matter. And um, and as advertising started coming in, I I opened a business bank account, and and all that stuff started happening. That that entrepreneurs, I'm sure, do. Um, one of the things I do not have, which now that when I speak to people um, who know they're getting starting a company for the first time, is that if you have money if you, and if you can spend it, spend money on something. Make sure you get a right financial person to help you structure the company, keep the books. Every, I mean, I think that more than anything is probably one of the most important things if you are looking to build this. And when I moved from London to U.S. and when I was setting up the business in U.S. and before we even got the first round funding, just trying to clean up all the financial stuff was a huge task. I mean, it was that probably set us back six months. Um, and, and at that point, it was it was just me, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But but I could have gained six months on our on on the business had I had the right financial structure or right financial advice to start with i guess uh, i guess you can never go back and change that right yeah yeah and i mean it was literally pulling things like sending invoices i mean i never used to even send invoices to sponsors until i had i figured out that oh um i don't have enough money in my bank so now i gotta send invoices so like sending invoice for the last four months of advertising and they weren't happy about it because they have to pay pay a lump sum. So things like that, I I try and tell entrepreneurs just make sure you're, you're you have the right financial structures in place. So if you go back to those early days when you'd uh, you know when it was turning into a business, you're selling the ads, you're kind of figuring out the business side. What were your days like? Like how many hours were you working? How many of them were? Well, I was working 24. I mean, I was working. I woke up. It was my room. It's not as if I had another room to be. It was literally the same room, but it was just one bedroom. So I, was, I had a phone and I had an internet connection, and that's all really what you needed in my business. I mean, that's all you still need in our business. Um, and uh, it was morning till till the time you just dropped dead in the in the in the evening. And I mean, I luck. I've had a bunch of friends in London, which helps. Um, I joined a local gym, so that helped as well, just to just to get out and get some exercise. But uh, from a laptop, I moved to at that point my laptop was slow. I moved from a laptop to a PC, 
And so that helped as well because I had a bigger screen and it was, it was much faster. And then stories, and then other publications started doing stories on, on me at that point. I remember 2003, and this was when the big, it was June 2003, if I think if I remember it right, and I was in London, and Wired News, the website, not the magazine, did a story on me about, and the, and the headline was, blogging for bucks. And if you actually search for that phrase in Google, I think my story comes up first and it's been referenced since then for like a million times probably. And because I had started getting some money, I mean, I was, I was able to live in London through advertising that I was getting. That was the first big break. I got lots and lots of emails and st- and, and at that point, uh, page views to the site. And uh, also won this European Online Journalism Award for the best blog in, I think, business media, whatever it was, best blog in business media. Uh, and then for, for winning that award, I got a mention on the BBC website and stuff like that. So so things started happening at that end, which helped, uh, helped, me, helped me realize that what at least I was doing was the right thing. And so during this whole time back when, you know, you were, you were broke and you were just kind of figuring out the business and working 24 hours a day, were you having fun? It was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I, I, this was what I wanted to do. My, I mean, I, I don't know if I wanted to do it whole my, my whole life, but this is what I realized that this is what I, I was made for. I knew how to write. I knew the industry. And I was learning how to, how to grow how to grow a business in that industry. So this was a lot of fun. I, um, my family was always worried about me back back then, but ultimately they came around and they were in India. I mean, they, they still are in India, my parents and my brothers and sisters. Um, but but they realized that this is what I loved doing. They, um, My aunt, who I lived initially with in London, she didn't want me to start the business, she said, you should just go into a safe government job, and I, I'm glad I didn't go there. <laughs> so now in 2003, like you were saying, things were happening, people were starting to take notice, uh, I guess, you know, both your site was really succeeding, and then the industry was really starting to come around. Uh, you know, a lot of people kind of hear these stories, it's like, oh, the blog got popular, and then it became a business. Is that how it worked, or, you know, what do you have to do to really turn this thing into a growing business. Yeah, and the second site had already launched, I mentioned to Mokunyu, so I was doing two sites. I actually launched a third site as well during, if I remember right, during the third half of, uh, during the second half of 2003, uh, and third site was about digital music. And at that point, digital music was just starting to, again, was early days for digital music. But I quickly, I quickly realized I can't do three different sites. It was just way too much for me. And I closed that site down within, I would say, like six months. And um, But again, it gave me, and I mean, what, it, what I did learn was that this is what the media, the online media business is. You launch something, it's low cost. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, you, you quickly quickly adapt, and I think that was one of the things, the, the early lessons that I learned there. And um, I also started this thing called the Broadband Content Report, and at that point, again, this was, I would say, late 2003, um, that it was an email, weekly email newsletter, um, which again sounds kind of counterintuitive, um, about broadband uh, media, things like online video, audio video. Um, broadband access as it was increasing throughout the world. So that I started putting together. Again, that also closed down about six months later when I realized that, that I could not do it alone. So um, the economy had started to come back in, by the end of 2003 a little bit. Early 2004, um, March, I moved to Los Angeles because that was a personal decision because my then fiance and now wife um, was from L.A. So it was either she moved to LA or I moved to, uh, she moved to London or I moved to LA and we decided to move here. And well, I, I decided to move here and then we got married six months later. Since I was covering a lot of US, I mean, when I was covering online media, I was covering primarily US businesses. The money that I was getting from sponsorships advertising at that point was majority was, was US. 
So it did make sense from a business perspective for me to be here. And as I came in March 2004, the economy started coming back. I started speaking to a lot of people who wanted to help me out, both in terms of maybe putting some money in this or, or helping otherwise as well. And, um, and that's when it all started coming together. And so what was it like when you, uh, when you were kind of getting to that point that you had some investing interest? You know, what were the revenues looking like from those really early sponsors? What were, what were the kind of revenues? I mean, those were, I mean, those were high five figures at that point. But, um, well, mid to high five figures uh, by, like, end of 2004. And um, so it was enough that I could sustain myself and I got married at the end of 2004 that I could, we could at least have a life together. So, so there, was, there, was, there was revenue enough for two people, I, I would suppose, at that point. Um, by end of 2004, I also realized that that I was going to get married. I needed somebody else, some more help on the at least on the journalism side. So, uh, and I was going away to get married, so that was going to be a while before I could. And I did not want to close down the blog for that period of time when I was not around, because at that point I, I had I had readers and I had revenue, so I didn't want that to stop. I put up a job posting on the site saying I'm going away for a month and a half and wanted and wanted to hire somebody part time for two months. And then a bunch of people responded. Stacy Stacy Kramer, who I mentioned before, she I had known for a while anyway because she was at inside.com and she had written some guest uh, posts for us before from some other conference. Um, and uh, she said, I'll do it, and uh, she was only hired for two months, um, and this was for paid content. For Moco News, I had this, this journalist from ZDNet Australia replied, and I liked his background. He was writing on telecom there. James Spears, his name was. Uh, he was he and Stacy were the first employees that I, not employees, but the first part-timers I hired. And the interesting part, of course, was both of them were virtual. Stacy used to and still lives in St. Louis. Um, James lived in Australia. From there, he's now moved to Mexico. Um, so even from the start, this was a virtual experience for me, working with, with journalists as well as business people. So they were, again, they were brought on for two months. They, um, even those two months, they were not full-time. They were part-time two months. And I took my laptop on my, and my wedding was multi country, you don't want to go into all the details, but it was all like multi-country wedding because my wife is South African, I'm Indian, so it was multi-continent wedding. So I took my laptop, and the first day I took my laptop, the power cord for the laptop blew up, and I did not, and this was in India, and Gateway, this was presence in India at that point, so that meant that I had no way for my laptop to work during my whole trip. Uh, which was actually a good thing because I didn't know work. Um, but then Stacy managed to figure out how to update the site, how to do the newsletters and everything. So when I came back, again, it was early, it was January 2005. Same thing again, the advertising market had come back. We did not take any investment until June 2006. We did have a lot of interest. We talked to a lot of people. But in the end, during that period, I realized that it was way too small. It was not going to be valued much, and we had to still grow it, and we kept growing it until until we took the funding. So I guess you have Gateway to thank for a uh, peaceful honeymoon, or at least distraction-free. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly true. I mean, if Stacy did uh, say maybe I should send you send you a new one by FedEx, I said no, just don't. It's going to be too expensive, uh, and at that point, it was too expensive for us. So you realize you need money, uh, you know, you need financing to really make it into what it should be. What do you do? Um, I mean, we, 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 I guess, could have gone without funding. I mean, that's, we, the money he took was, was not that much. I mean, we didn't disclose that amount, and we haven't even now. Um, we took the venture funding from Greycroft Partners, but it was much less than is what we said. So it was a small amount. Uh, it was a few hundred thousand dollars, but I mean, for it was, what it did was validate us in the market. We, the 
founder of Greycroft is Alan Alan Patrickoff, who's very well known in in the venture capital and media industry. He's based in New York, and uh, he founded New York Magazine. He invested in AOL and Apple, uh, so he's a very well known uh, media investor. And uh, his validation was huge for us. So I think that helped us put up put us on the map for a lot of people. Now, what, what was that process like? I mean, you know, most people say that like just a few hundred bucks is uh, a few hundred thousand dollars is a small amount for a venture investment, you know, but what was the, um, you know, what was kind of the conversation with him like? What was that kind of process like in finding your partner? Yeah, I mean, at that point, this was um, early 2000, uh, it's early 2006, early 2006. So we were speaking to a couple of big media companies and we meaning me because it was still me, Stacey, and James, three people, and all three of us journalists, and I was doing the business side. Um, um, we were speaking to um, some big media companies on whether essentially they would buy us, which at that point meant hire the three of us journalists. They were valuing us only as journalists, and we said, no, we're not going to do that, meaning that they weren't considering the business side too seriously. And then I decided not to go through that process. Meanwhile, Alan Patrickoff's office, he had just started. He, Alan founded Apex, Apex Ventures, uh, Apex Partners, which is the big private equity firm now. I uh, started as a venture capital firm, as you probably know. Um, and he uh, sold his stake or, uh, and uh, started his new fund in 2006 to invest in very early stage startups, which is what he liked all along. So his office called, and literally called, there was no email, just like, I pick up the phone, and said, I'm calling from Alan Patrickoff's office, and I said, oh, I've heard of him. I had seen him, when I was a Silicon Alley reporter, I'd seen him speaking, so I knew he was very well known. They said that, well, it was somebody from his office, it was not him. Um, and... Um, they, they asked me about the business and, and how I was doing it and when I was coming to New York and they wanted to meet me and I was going to be in New York the next week for some other conference that I was speaking at. I met him, I think it was February 2006, I met him. And um, within 20 minutes of me starting speaking to him, telling me about our business and stuff, he started saying things which immediately I figured out that he got it. I mean, this is the guy who's been in the media industry for so long. He understand he understands the challenge of, of startup, of somebody starting it from the scratch, doing it alone, trying to run a business. And his immediate concern, which I which I will never forget, was for me and my wife at that point as a family, meaning how do you get to spend time with your wife and and why haven't you put all the structures in uh in the company? So his concern there was what sort of helped me decide in his favor in terms of money, taking money from him. So that was very important. The funding process was long. I mean, it took about, I'd say, five months for such a small amount of money to be given. But at that point, I didn't have any structure. He introduced me to this one business company in Los Angeles, and he became our COO for a year. So he, this guy, he helped us, me pull the company out of my bedroom. We got a small office. Um, actually, it was our CEO's office that I was, that we got for ourselves. Uh, we hired a salesperson. We hired one salesperson, so our first external salesperson. Um, and, um, and that's, and that's how we started building the site. So what were those five months like? You know, like people hear the, the, I guess, most famous funding stories with Google where the guy writes them to check on the spot. It sounds like this was kind of the opposite. Well, you know, what's that courting phase like? Well, I mean, it w- Alan always was ready to put the money in. He just wanted to see some structures in place before he could put the money. I mean, the fact of the matter is we didn't even have a proper balance sheet before he invested the money. So we, we we got in a part-time CFO who is actually still our CFO. That I mean, he was part-time at that point, and he did a great job cleaning up the books and doing that. So it all—it's not as if I was speaking to five other investors at that point. There were there, there was interest, and people because they were reading our site, it included venture capitalists, um, 
I mean, I did get approached a bunch of times by other people, but they were only looking at us as quote-unquote content business, which, um, yes, we are a content business, but, but we are a news media business. So it's a, it's a very specific uh, subsector of the content business per se. And somebody who understands the news media business as a VC, I mean, there are very few people who, who very few VCs who invest specifically in news media businesses. And I wanted to sort of stay with those kind of people who look at journalism-run businesses on a long-term basis, not on a short-term horizon. So that's that. That was one of the key decision factors for me then, and I'm and I'm glad I did it. So tell me now, once you got the business structure in place and your funding and and kind of all the the structure really put together, what was the vision for growing your uh, growing your company? Well, I mean we had started, this was even before we got funding, we started doing events. And the idea was that, so we've been, I've been, we've been writing the site and the blog and newsletter for a while. We had all these readers that we are in touch with that we um, meet at different conferences and uh, email each other and speak to, speak to them and stories and sources and stuff like that. And how about bringing them together, what we call the mixer and, and, and Mixer was just a networking event that I, I, the first one we did, I remember, was in Los Angeles, and uh, so at this hotel that we, and it was very organic, it was so organic that I said, I put a post on the site when I first thought of it, saying, oh, we're thinking of, thinking of doing this event, um, what do you think? And I got tons and tons of responses on, oh, we'll help you do it there, we got a, we got a hotel venue because of, People who emailed back, we got sponsors because of that. They said, oh, we'll sponsor. So it was very organic at that point. And even now, I've tried to sort of keep some of that organic nature of the business there where you solicit uh, feedback from the readers in terms of how should we do this, how do we do this event, what kind of conferences or panels do you think you should do. So we still try and do that quite a bit on the site. So the vision at that point was to to build build these sites and start start some events and and that's how we did did and we moved from two sites to three in 2000 um, 2006 or was it mid 2005 somewhere I launched Content Sutra which was the India site and at that point because my family is from India and I knew the Indian market was was going very well on the digital media side especially on the mobile side and the business audience there was English language, meaning that they were reading um, and conducting business in English. It was just easy for me to uh, start a country-specific site, and that's what we did. Uh, Launch Content Sutra in 2000, again, mid-2005. Mid Very early days for anybody covering digital media in India, but it, we were bringing together, hired this guy who I worked with back when I was in India, and uh, he helped me start the site. So we from we we went from two sites to three. Um, we started doing mixers. Then then we said we we decided to uh, to do a full conference, and we finally managed to do a full conference last year. Last year, April last year was our first full conference, and uh, we've done three more since then. We've started doing these things called seminar. Um, we're doing half day events, uh, which we call seminars, and these are more focused. Uh, more focused than say a full day conference, and still do still do the mixers that we do in various different cities in um, in the in U.S. as well as U.K. and India. The first one, the first mixer was in Los Angeles. The second was in New York and Boston, D.C., Seattle. So the point was to go where our major audiences were and do these mixer events and bring them together. And people liked that a lot, and those were sponsored events, and they they were. There were and still are a revenue stream for us. So this sounds like a pretty on the revenue side. It sounds like a real kind of old school media model, right? You sell ads and you run conferences and make your money that way. Yeah, I mean it is. It is. The only thing there is that the, the economics and the cost of doing that are a lot cheaper. We also started uh, doing research reports. This was again early on. I would say 2005, where. Um, I think the first one we did was digital media deals report, 
And what it was was we were already covering the venture capital and, and M&A deals on a daily basis on the phone. So we took, I think, a year's worth of deals from the from the site. And uh, first, you had to separate the VC deals from the M&A deals because how it was structured at that point was it was not separate. We just called it deals. And this was all like manual work because at that point, the blog tools were pretty... Uh, we're, we're, we're still very early stages of blog tools, and the data wasn't structured that well. I mean, first, I didn't know how to structure the data that well. So we copy-pasted and we then added some context to these deals and put it together in a PDF, and uh, we were selling it for like $30 a pop at that point. And this sold like 200 copies, and we made a lot of – it was good money for us. Again, also very early on, I started job section on the site. I called it Digital Media Jobs Blog. And what it actually was, was besides people being, what it was, was I was searching for digital media jobs on Monster, Career Builder, whatever, hot jobs at that point, and, and just linking to them, essentially blogging and linking to digital media business jobs and putting it in a separate blog on our site. So what that meant was that became a portal to digital media jobs. And again, at that point, believe me, there it was still a lot less jobs than there are now. So, um, and then, and then for you to be featured, you had to pay. And that was, uh, and that's how people started paying for premium jobs. I dropped the aggregation idea about six months later, and because we started getting enough jobs that I didn't have to aggregate from other sites. And again, those are all revenue streams that we were building in. So it sounds like the strategy was you figured that through the blog you were able to kind of kind of be the focal point for this community, and then the, I guess the idea was to make money off every which way possible, or, or I mean, make money exactly. through a bunch of different ways. Yeah, and and also do it once, and then repackage it in any way that you can, which is which is what we did with reports because the reports that we did weren't any original content per se, it was repackaging of what we had already done. It was just put together in this nice little PDF packet that people liked. So I guess you really lived to your mission of uh, paid content in that sense, right? In that sense, yeah. We did get paid any any which way. So, I mean, those were the revenue streams. Those are still the revenue streams. It's not there. I mean, the streams are there for everyone to see. I mean, the revenue streams aren't. It's not like any hidden revenue streams. And now how, when you were kind of modeling this out and then, and then kind of, I guess, from what you had in your mind to what you actually found, how did the percentages break out? Like, was it, you know, mostly advertising and then these other things were nice add-ons or was it? No, I knew all along that it was going to be online advertising that was going to be the majority of the revenues. And that's, um, well, actually now events is a big part of our business. Uh, but even there, um, sponsorships are, of course, big. Um, so you would consider that as part of the advertising. Um, then, of course, we have, we have ticket sales for the conferences as well. But I knew all along that it was going to be a mix of online. I mean, it, it was going to be online advertising. Uh, mainly, these were good add-ons that we had, which had good, good, pretty good profit margins. And so how is it as a, as a small media company? You know, if you're at a, you know, a large media company like someone... A reporter can do a story on an advertiser and know that, you know, if they piss them off or not, like they'll still get their paycheck, et cetera, et cetera. When you're a small media company, you know, you you probably know all the advertisers personally. You're seeing the checks come yeah. through. What was that like having to also cover them? Well, I mean, we uh, this was even before I hired anybody. This was a problem that was from the start. Me as a journalist who became an entrepreneur, but was still doing both things, selling ads as well as writing about about some companies. One of the things that we did early on, I decided, is that so most of the sponsors, advertisers were vendor companies, meaning software companies that were selling their software to um, the big media companies. So our focus was not on covering the vendor industry. Our focus was on covering the media content industry, which these vendors were selling into. So in some senses, there was a separation there. But in, in, in other cases, there was, but these boundaries were kind of artificial because 
if you're covering the venture funding for this company that you're also a sponsor for, so where do those ponders go? But I mean, we, I have, I think that's what, that's what I've always said. It's better that somebody in, on the editorial side or somebody like me who had editorial experience and knew what this line between editorial and advertising was, was the founder and was running it for a long time. Um, and that helped define the company culture, which is editorial and advertising are separate and there's no way that that is going to be mixed. I mean, there were instances where a couple of advertisers did, uh, there's, there's at least a couple of potential advertisers that did not come in because I knew that I, I did a negative story in them or whatever the story was, I'm forgetting what it was, but they, one specifically, I remember one company that they signed the contract and then, then backed out because because they because I did the negative story in them. This was this was a long time ago. This was two thousand four, I think. Um, but but those things those things happened. They at the end of the day, you they realize and you realize that we are in the same industry. They're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. And uh, if you're fair on them, uh, if you're if you're aggressive on them in one one story, if they do something good, you also do a story. Then, uh, then I think they realize that I'm fair and balanced, as as they use the phrase, and I think we've done that to 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 a large extent over the years. Yeah, and so uh, as this was all going on too, I guess you also had a lot more competition come up in the field. I mean, you know, there was of course uh, TechCrunch, which had started up, which seems to have a very different focus than paid content, but had really taken off with a lot of traffic. And more recently, uh, Kevin Ryan, who was also on this show launched uh, Silicon Alley Insider, which has probably um, a more similar focus to yours and, according to Compete, is uh, starting to get up there in traffic. What would you, um, you know, what was kind of your view is, you know, as you were going from being in the kind of pioneering stages to it becoming a more mature market and having all these competitors out there? Yeah, and it's always good to have competitors. I mean, I've, I've covered industries enough that I know that it's not a cliché. Uh, having competitors in the market helps you define yourself first in a lot better way. It helps you make uh, your job a lot better. It helps us do a lot more stuff that we hadn't thought of before. So, um, see, I mean, when we started, nobody else was doing this. Now there are all kinds of sites, and um, and not just these news sites. If you look at New York Times, Wall Street Journal, or even all these other mainstream publications, they've stepped up their game a lot in terms of covering technology and media. So, um, so it's not just new sites that came up, but the old, old, old companies have stepped up their game. Competition from all along. I think our serious focus, which is why Guardian Media Group bought us, and and you've seen the reaction to that as well. Um, our focus on multimedia, multi-platform revenues, which is what I mentioned over the last hour that I mentioned to you about online versus uh, offline and research reports kind of stuff. I think our diversified um, focus, which is um, sectors in the industry, um, and our journalistic integrity that, that would build up the, over the years, I think those are the three things that, uh, three or four things that I think uh, put us in a very good position. On the business side, our revenues keep growing, and I think Guardian buying it is a, is a validation of, of, I think, all of those. And so tell me about the, the standards. I guess there's always kind of a perverse um, either incentive or at least, uh, you know, kind of carrot out there for bloggers, which is when you have a half story or, you know, when you have a rumor that you can publish, when you have a uh, you know, good, something good without a source to just publish it, get the traffic, and you can always issue a correction. Where do you think paid content stands vis-a-vis, you know, Alley Insider and TechCrunch and the Times' blogs and everyone else? Well, I mean, I don't know what their standards are. Um, I can talk about my standards. Our standards are we don't publish rumors. We, when we break a story, uh, we know it's true. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no doubt that we when when we write a story it, it just it just won't be wrong. Uh I mean we could be proven wrong on some stories, but that's I'm sure everybody in the industry, not just not just blogs. Um things change if if their deal is happening and the deal did not happen and at the last second something changed. I mean so does that mean you were wrong? No, we were right at the time when we were when we were reporting the story. 
but the point we but we still are a lot faster than a lot of people on on confirming stories and and being able to break. I mean, a, a lot of it has to do with the kind of contacts you have in the industry who can who can help you confirm the story a lot faster than anybody else can. Uh, we we won't. I mean, we, we don't publish rumors. We get tips all the time in email. Uh, that if you could look at my email list versus what's on the site, that's a lot different because we're either confirming or confirming those rumors or whether they're true or not true, those, those, those kind of things. I mean, I do think that we've held ourselves to that standard, and that's helped us define our position in the industry. And I, with all the new journalists that we've had over the last two years, that's one of the things that I've tried to, to drill into them is the standards that we have. Um, I do think that that if you try and publish rumors, um, you may be able to get away with it a few times. But if people start thinking about you in that way, then in the, in, in the long term, it would it would probably harm you, uh, both on the editorial reputation side as well as on the business side. So I do think that that being a gossip rag is tough to monetize. Beyond, I mean, you'll certainly you'll get a lot of page views, but if you want to scale into a, a multi-media business and multiple revenue streams, you always run into some kind of walls there. That's what I think. I could, I mean, I'm sure there are there some people who can prove me wrong, but that's how I that's how I look at it. And what would you say is the state of the industry? Like, you know, if someone's asked you today compared to five years ago you know, is blogging or whatever you want to call it, are are the standards high, are the standards low? What would you say? Well, I mean, you can't define blogging as one industry. I mean, there are all kinds of... It's like saying Internet is one industry. It's not. I mean, there's, there's, it's just the whole world is Internet at this point. So, um, I mean, there there's people who do it for a million kinds of different reasons. They write about millions of kinds of different things. Um, some of them use it just for the personal. Some of them use it as part of their businesses. Some businesses use it as part of their communication. Some people, uh, like us, have uh, formed media businesses out of them. So there's there, there's all kinds. And and certainly in, in politics over everything else, the role of blogs has been well documented. Um, in terms of what's the state right now, I mean, when when I started blogging, blogging was uh, social networking was not around in the form that we know it now i think now there's so many other ways for people to express themselves besides blogs that that that's become one part of the whole social media mix i mean video sharing news sharing all kinds of other sharing sites have have come along since then so just in terms of how they fit in, I think they're certainly an, an integral part. You look at all the news sites and media sites, mainstream sites, they've adopted blogs. And they're and to the extent that it's kind of funny that um, somebody like Anderson Cooper and uh, some of the TV anchors in between their TV breaks of their shows, they're actually blogging online, which is just, like I think it's just absolutely nuts. But in terms of sort of our specific sector, the blog media companies, it, it is, um, as you know, the financial markets are going through a very tough time. Scaling uh, requires money. It requires support. It requires, of course, traffic. Um, you will probably see some more consolidation in in the industry uh, in the next few months, if it's the second half of this year, early half of next year. Um, some of the other blog media sites could get bought out or they will raise more funding. So you'll see that happening. I mean, there were, there already, even before us, there have been some, some other blogs that have been bought by other media companies. I mean, we look at ourselves as a small um, uh, small business media company. I mean, blogs were delivery vehicle for us to deliver news and information. And we, are, we besides the one main site with three other sites, which are doing very well, and uh, we had we have all these conferences, research boards. So we look at us ourselves as a business-to-business information source. Um, I think some of the some of the blog media companies that will be bought will have will be along those lines. Meaning they will have to show that they have multiple revenue streams and multiple ways 
in which they cover the industry, whatever industry they are in. So tell me a bit about what uh, paid content and ContentX Media and all your properties look like today in terms of, you know, um, well, I guess, first of all, like, what's the headcount up to now? About 20, uh, 25 to 27 people were just hired. We're in hiring mode. We'll do a lot more hires in the second half of this year. Um, at the same time, we're being, I mean, we're being rational. The market, uh, certainly, we are not seeing huge effects in our sector yet on um, of the economy, but I'm not a fool that we want to, I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't bury my head in the sand and say that that's not going to happen. So we're being careful when we're hiring. We are hiring a bunch of people, but we are being careful about it. And so to, to get to this level, were you able to do it all on those few hundred grand that you raised from Patrickoff and co? Or uh... Yes. I mean, we it was that and, of course, the revenues that we were, we were getting on our own. And so what are the revenues like now? Uh, we, we're not disclosing that. I guess to uh, to support twenty five people on revenues, it's got to be at least a couple million. Um, um, it was a few million, but we're not. But I mean, we're a private company. We're not disclosing how much revenues we had last year versus what we had before. And what I'll say is, we've doubled our revenues every year. Yeah. And we are on track to do it this year. So that's got to be pretty exciting, and uh, and all in spite of the economy, or at least not affected by. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, we are on track to double our revenue this year. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we, we don't get affected. As I said, we're not seeing it yet, but I'm sure there'll be some slowing down in the uh, second half of this year. Again, my thought is that because we have these multiple revenue streams in multiple countries, uh, we'll be able to weather it a lot better. And now that we're part of a much bigger company, uh, that actually does take a long-term view of their media business that so they're owned by. So the Guardian Media Group, I don't know how much you know about it, but Guardian Media Group is owned by Scott Trust, which is a trust. So it's 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 not a for, it's it's a commercially run company, but it's owned by a trust. So they take a long-term view of, of, of the businesses, which of course helps us a lot, whether any any kind of downturn that that, that is happening or will happen in the, in the next year or so. And so tell me with uh, The Guardian, how did you first get to know them and how did that play out? I mean, we were in the middle of, us, of raising our second round. So the idea was that um, we would have probably closed our second round by now. And then Brian came along. We weren't shopping the company. Initially, we said, well, we're not interested in selling. We can... Um, we were looking... And, and if, they were, if they wanted to consider strategic investment, that they, they can... They said we don't do strategic investment, and then we thought about it. We, we all of all the reasons sort of said on the side as well, which is that we wanted somebody. We wanted to stay independent. Uh, we wanted to be part of a company that had very high journalistic values, and uh, and that they would help us grow in all these. Who had an international view, and Guardian has, of course, based in UK. They have interest in in U.S. as well as India and all three countries that 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 we are um, very strong in. So all those check which were the which were which and I've known those people for a long time. I've known executives and in, uh, in Guardian Media Group for a long time since I lived in London. I, I knew they're very nice, decent business people, uh, and I've known the journalists there as well. So all of that put together decided that uh, we started doing negotiations with them and uh, they put one offer, which we didn't accept. Then they then they came back with an offer, and then we negotiated over the, la- over the last uh, three, three weeks. It was a very quick deal. I mean, it was incredibly fast compared to sort of other deals. Um, and we closed it Thursday night and after Friday morning. Wow. And I, I heard, uh, I'd read that you'd brought in a banker for that uh, deal? We, we did have a banker, yeah. It was a small deal, so, um, so yeah. I mean, relatively speaking, for bankers, it was a small deal. Yeah, what, what was kind of your decision about how to handle that process? Like, why bring in a banker and why not try to shop it to every media company? Well, I mean, it was, as I said, we weren't out there shopping the company. Yeah, we... Uh, just decided based on the merit of Guardian Media Group that that was just the best fit and let's just figure out the best deal that we can 
we can we can we can come together with with that company. We were speaking to other media companies on on strategic investment. As, I mean, and we're speaking to the VC companies, uh, other VC firms on the on the investment for the second round when when we're doing it. But we decided just not to and to shop the company. And what kind of multiples do uh, do media companies generally see in these type of situations? Like, what's you know, what's kind of the guidance on that? That's a good question because you're trying to get the multiple out of me. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, it's it it could vary anywhere. Ours was, I think, a very good deal for both sides. Um, typically, some of the uh, the big traditional media companies, um, and we're not big and we're not traditional. Um, get anywhere from three to five times uh, forward-looking revenues, but we were not traditional and we were not big. So we were valued. Not, I mean, I think a lot from our value was based on um, the value of our audience and um, and our journalistic reputation and the brand that we, we built. And, of course, the future, the future potential. I mean, everybody looks at that. So, um, so it was a mix of all of those. Yeah, I mean, are the rumors right? I think I read somewhere that it was $30 million. We're not commenting on the price. What was that like? I mean, being, you know, now you're in a transaction and, you know, you're having to keep the deal quiet and keep the information under control <laughs> and, and, you know, how it goes. People like to find this stuff out. What, what was that like being on the other side? Well, I mean, it was, certainly was interesting because that's what we do for a living. We try and sniff out other, other people's deals. Uh, and and write about it. I mean, that's what we do for a living, right? Keep trying to keep the lid on it, trying to um, uh, finish it in a very very. Sh- I mean, we were working over July fourth, the whole weekend. I mean, the whole we were closed as a company. We were closed from July second, third, fourth, and of course fifteen sixth because it was uh, it was a weekend. But uh, the Guardian deal team was here in LA in our offices, and it was. Our offices were closed, um, but I was here, our CFO and CEO was here, and the Guardian deal team was here. Um, so it was it was very, very surreal, so to speak, and I know everybody uses that word, but it, it was. And we were trying to keep a lid on it, but somebody beat us to it by, by a few hours, but still. Um, I was I, For the closing of the deal, I was in New York last week, I mean, all of us were in New York, um, and Guardian's team was in New York as well. And um, um, we, we closed the deal Thursday. Friday, we, I, I had written my post Thursday night. Um, the press release was, was ready to go out, and then somebody called me at like 4 o'clock in the morning or something on my cell phone that the story is out. And I said, oh, my God. Um, <laughs> anyway. So we, I had to I had to call Guardian. We had to coordinate because we were coordinating with their PR, and we went with the story two hours later. So did you think that you'd be able to? Uh, did you think that you were going to be able to get the scoop, or did did you kind of know that like you know this is how it goes? Well, I mean, I knew this is how it goes. I mean, this is what we do to other people. So if somebody did it to us, um, I was I mean I was very ready for it. I was surprised it did not, it did not leak before. So I was not surprised that it got leaked. Yeah, yeah. And was uh, Guardian expecting it? or? Well, I mean, I don't know. I did tell them. I did tell them like two days before, do not be surprised if you find the story elsewhere between our company and their company. And the diligence people that their side has spoken to and our side had spoken to, there probably were about close to 100 people uh, that knew about the deal. Um, so by the time we, we announced it, but uh, just before we announced, a hundred people would have probably known in between all those two companies. So if if I mean if there's that many people, you can't expect to keep a lid on it. Yeah, and you think people are just kind of guessing? Do you, do you think there was a good source for the number, or were people just kind of guessing? You know, maybe they have five million. It's a five X. I um, I can't comment on that. Again, I can't comment on that one. It just I can't go anywhere near that. Sure, I guess uh, I guess that's uh, that's part of the trouble of being an entrepreneur and a journalist, right? Yeah. So just to uh, to kind of tie it all together, I guess you know now we're um, 
you know, now we're kind of in a, in a tough academy again, and it's going back to, you know, to when you started and that Seth Godin quote, what's your, you know, what's your feel for the market in terms of how, how other entrepreneurs and other journalists should be thinking about the media for the next couple of years? Well, I mean, if you want to be an entrepreneur right now, better make sure in the media space, better make sure that the sector you are in doesn't have crazy amount of better. I mean, and also, you have to be it just because people's consumption patterns of news have changed so much just in the last five years from going to websites to now Twitter and RSS and and, and email and all kinds of alerts everywhere. I think a lot has changed in how people get their news. So trying to build a multimedia, trying to build a, a, a news media company that uh, there are already tons of existing sources, you will have a tough time. I mean, that was that was always true, but it's it's more true now than ever. Um, in terms of business-to-business media companies, a lot of the traditional ones will keep having trouble on the print side, will keep migrating online. Um, a lot of journalists are being laid off, as you've seen over the last um, last year. I mean, a lot of newspapers are laying off a lot of journalists. A lot of trade media companies are laying off a lot of journalists. Just today, there's news that Hollywood Reporter, which is, which covers entertainment industry, just laid off 12 people, out of which 10 were journalists. So a lot of bleeding is happening from these, these traditional media companies, which is actually good for us because we can pick up some of that, some of that business as well as journalistic talent for ourselves. So for, 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 for us, that's good. But you will also see a lot of journalists breaking out from within big media companies and doing their own thing. And you've already seen that over the last few years. You'll see, see it a lot more as the tools to build and support them as businesses become a lot more common. I mean, companies like Federated Media and Glam and, and um, blog ads and all those others are there for... Um, for these sites to be monetized, I mean, they will never make help you make a huge media company, but at least they will help you get a start. And as you grow, then you can build your own team. And we never went that route, but 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 that's an option available to a lot of these blog media companies now. I mean, TechCrunch, VentureBeat, Gigam, all of these people use um, these ad networks as well. So last question, you know, what should we what should we be expecting next? Are you still are you still working twenty four hours a day and gonna be launching any new sites or Yeah, I mean I'm still working pretty hard. We are incentivized to work hard, let's just say that. Um and uh, we're in it for the long term, as, I, as I've always been. I mean, it's, I, I didn't build this to flip it. I've been around, I mean, I think me being in it for six years proves that part. There's some very interesting things coming during the second half of the year. We were, we are expanding and going deeper into some of the verticals that we're covering. We're, we're, we're doing more events. We're doing more research supports. We're building something very exciting for the second half of the year, which we can't disclose right now, which... When you, you see it, you immediately get it. Uh, with Guardian behind our, uh, we're being, I mean, with us being part of the Guardian group, I think we have a lot more resources to do what we want to do. Well, congratulations on the exit, and uh, thanks so much for sharing your story here on Venture Voice. Oh, thank you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to this Venture Voice. One of the best parts about the show is getting your feedback. Make sure you go to our website, VentureVoice.com. You can leave a comment there. We often take uh, your thoughts from the comments, work them into future shows. Also on our last show with Frank Cadente, he even uh, logged on and responded to your comment, as many other past guests will do. So it's a great way to have a dialogue both with me and with these guests. You can also email us, talk at VentureVoice.com. You can even leave an audio comment by calling our voicemail line at U.S. area code 212-461-4850. Again, that's 212-461-4850. Until next time, this is Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.